Heavenly Father, thank you so much. What a beautiful day it has been, and what a privilege it is to come together to fellowship and to study your word. Lord, please teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit tonight. Give us the ideas that are right there in your word, but help us to see them clearly and understand them. And Lord, through the same Spirit's power, to write them on our hearts. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 12, the heart of the book of Revelation, starting with verse 7 of Revelation chapter 12. And again, you see the, right next to every passage, there is a little number in bold. That's for the page number in the pew Bible in front of you. So if you're not that familiar with Scripture, no problem at all. All I have to do is be able to count, and you can find what page we're on. Page 1182 in your pew Bible, or Revelation chapter 12, beginning with verse 7, describing the war that began in heaven. Verse 7, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. The burden of our message last evening was to ask the question, why was Satan cast out instead of being completely wiped out of existence? If God saw what the problem was, why did he allow it to continue? Thus, did God create the devil? And our answer was no, he did not create the devil. He created Lucifer in a perfect place, in a perfect state, ordained him as a minister of the gospel, and apparently he was doing a great job, but he chose to rebel. And in his heart, I will become like the Most High. And as we looked last night, if God had simply wiped him out the minute that iniquity rose up, God would have been just in what he did, but he wouldn't be seen as just to all the other intelligences watching the whole thing transpire. Thus we saw in the parable of the wheat and the tares, now that the tares have taken root, we must let it grow to fruition so that all can see the difference. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, records what we studied last night. Now I want to move into the very next verse, verse 10. Notice that after he's cast out of heaven, the next thing John records in verse 10 is this. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven... Now, salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Now, it would be very easy to look at verses 7 through 9 and talk about what we talked about last night, then read verse 10 and simply say, oh, it's just repeating what we just saw in verses 7 through 9, that Satan was cast out, Christ was victorious, next verse. But I believe we see something different there. In fact, I would dare say we see a second casting out of Satan. What in the world do we mean by that? Let's go to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 12. page 1041 in your pew Bible, the Gospel of John, chapter 12. 
starting with verse 31, Jesus makes a very bizarre statement. If you don't understand the big picture in which he says it. John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world. And who did we identify that as last night? Satan, right? The devil who was cast out, but we gave him the keys to the place. He says, I give it, it's been given to me and I give it to whoever I wish. And Jesus himself says he's the ruler of this world. But now Jesus says, as he comes to the close of his ministry, looking to the last scenes of his life, he says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Wait a minute, I thought he was cast out way, way back before we were even... But here Jesus is 4,000 years later saying now he will be cast out. What does he mean? What's he referring to? Well, handily enough, just keep reading. It tells you right there in the text. Verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Now, we likely know what he meant by if I'm lifted up from the earth, but just in case we don't, look at verse 33. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. What was Jesus talking about when he says, if I'm lifted up from the earth? He's talking about his death on the cross. So this is my contention. This is our opening premise. We're going to spend the rest of our time developing this thought. That yes, Satan was cast out of the courts of heaven some 6,000 years ago now, but it wasn't until 4,000 years after that when Jesus died on the cross that he was cast out for a second time. What does that mean? So let's get into our study tonight. Let's go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, we're going to begin with verse 18. Here, Moses now is the visible leader of the children of Israel. Of course, God is their true leader with a pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud and whatnot. But Moses is the human leader of the people of Israel, and he's communing with the Lord as he's taking them up out of Egypt towards the promised land. And in Exodus chapter 33, Moses speaks to the Lord and makes a very bold, well, request of the Lord. Look what he says in verse 18. And he said, please show me your what? Glory. Clearly the question, the thing he wants to see is his glory. Now what did he mean by that? I'm not sure what he meant by that, honestly. But when I think of the glory of God, I oftentimes think of like shiny, bright, splendid, sparkly, gleam, you know. And Moses says, show me what it's like in there. Show me you, you know. But notice how God replied. Verse 19, then he said, this is the Lord, I will make all of my what? Goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And then he goes on to say what that means. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He starts talking about his goodness, his graciousness, his compassion. This isn't shiny. This isn't splendor. This is character. 
right? These are character traits. These are personal qualities of God. And I'm guessing Moses thought, I'm going to see something shiny, and God says, you're looking for glory. I'm going to show you goodness. That's who I am. That's what my name means. By the way, it's a side thing. There are people who get hung up on, oh, I have to say the name just right, and it's consonants and vowels. No, no, no. Friends, the name of God is the representation of his character. It's who he is. Just like the glory of God is his character. In fact, look at chapter 34, the very next chapter. When the Lord grants his requests, what does he do? Go to chapter 34, starting with verse 5. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed what? The name of the Lord. But it wasn't just a sound of vowels and consonants and syllables. It wasn't a particular pitch or timber that he heard. God described for him who he was, his character. Verse 6, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But just in case you think, oh, he's a pushover, notice what he says now. By no means clearing the what? The guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Okay, so he says, I am abounding in mercy and gracious and goodness and long-suffering and compassion, yet at the same time I'm a God of justice. He says, I'm merciful and I'm just this is who I am. Moses had asked to see the glory of God and the Lord described his character. Go to your fill in the blank on your lesson four there. Study guide four. When Moses asked to see God's glory, the Lord described his character, his goodness, his mercy, who he was. So the Lord... The Lord's own description of himself is a very good description. While he is just and fair, he's also compassionate and merciful and gracious and long-suffering. He says, that's who I am. In fact, go to the New Testament. How does the New Testament describe God? 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. 1 John Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. It's page 1182 in your pew Bible. 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is one of those, there's a little jingle in my head. Every time I see this passage, I want to break forth in song, right? It's a well-known passage, but look what it's really saying. Beloved, let us love whom? One another. Why? For love is of whom? God. So if we claim to be God's people... We should love like God because God is love. In fact, he goes on. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is what? Notice what it does not say. It does not say that God is loving. And it does not say that God is lovely just to behold It doesn't make a mild claim. It makes a very almost uh, mind-blowing thought here. God is 
love itself. Now, my wife probably thinks that I'm loving. I hope she thinks so tomorrow. It's her birthday tomorrow. And I think my wife is lovely, but neither one of us would say the other is the personification of love itself. But God can say that. For God is love. But is that what Satan claims about God's character? No. I want to take you to a fascinating piece of Scripture. Go to the book of Job, just before the book of Psalms. If you open up to the middle of the Bible, you'll come to Psalms. Go one book to the left. Go to the first chapter of the book of Job. J-O-B, Job. Job chapter 1 kind of peels back the curtain just a little bit more and lets us see behind the scenes of what's really going on. The story behind the story, if you will. In fact, most people believe the story of Job is about poor Job. Poor guy had everything good going in his life, and all of a sudden, for no reason at all, everything is taken away. His, his animals die. His children are killed. And his wife turns on him. His friends are telling him to curse God and die. Poor fella, poor. And we talk about the struggles and the trials of Job. But let me tell you something. The book of Job is not about Job. Let's see what I'm talking about. Go to chapter 1, the book of Job, and we'll go to verse 6. Now, there was a day. You know what? We, let's just go to verse 1. Can we do that? I want to make sure you see the context. To start the story fresh. Verse 1 of Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was what? Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. All his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. So apparently he was spiritually grounded, healthy relationship with God, upright and blameless man, feared God, shunned evil, and had a very large estate, was blessed to the nth degree. Verse 4, and his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would sin and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with him. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. He loved his children. He loved the Lord, and he wanted his children to love the Lord. He prayed for them regularly. Just in case they weren't praying for themselves, he interceded on their behalf. He cared for them. And those are the first five verses of the book of Job. Then all of a sudden you go to verse 6, and it's a very jarring turn. Watch what happens in verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Interesting. Now, there's quite a lot of speculation in the scriptural world about who these sons of God are. But let's cut to the chase just a little bit. As we see the story unfold, I think we'll be able to see who they are pretty clearly. 
First of all, when we think of, notice it doesn't say the Son of God, capital S singular, like it's a reference to Jesus himself. This is a lowercase plural. There's more than one of them, yeah? And then Jesus is the only begotten Son, right? There's a distinction between Jesus and his sonship and these other sons of God. Do they come from some other place? Well, yes. Apparently, they don't live where God dwells because they have to come into the presence of God from elsewhere. By the way, this is made even clearer as we keep reading. Notice verse 7. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Apparently, everyone else comes from some other place, and Satan has come also among them. Look at verse 8. I mean, continuing verse 7. So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro, where? On the earth. And from walking back and forth on it. It's kind of a cocky answer. He doesn't say, I'm just from the earth. He says, I'm going to and fro, walking back and forth wherever I want on the earth. What's the implication here? I run this place. Question. Had God established someone as the ruler of this world already? Who? Adam, remember? Rule over the world, have dominion over it. By the way, plot thickens just a little bit. Leave your finger in Job chapter 1 and go to the third gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel and the third chapter. Luke chapter 3 When it introduces us to Jesus, it gives a genealogy or a family history of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Now, I know that genealogies are not necessarily the most interesting part of Scripture, but there's some very important stuff in genealogies. Again, Luke chapter 3, we won't read the entire genealogy together because we need to get through the night's lesson and I can't say these names, but... As he gets farther and farther back in history, closer and closer to Adam, we'll go straight down to verse 38, okay? The genealogy of Jesus as it is closer and closer to Adam. Notice what it says. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam. But then what does it say about Adam? The son of whom? God. Adam was the According to Scripture, the Son of God given dominion over this world. According to Job chapter 1, there was a day when the sons, plural of God, came to resent themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said, from where do you come? And his answer is, I come from the earth, from walking back and forth and to and fro on it. There's a strong indicator that these sons of God are other created beings, who have come to before the Lord, and Satan comes now where Adam should be, but has usurped that authority, for it has been delivered to me, remember? He says, I'm here representing the earth today. I'm guessing that was one of those really awkward meetings. Right? Things got tense. But I love how the Lord handles things. First of all, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, get out of here, Satan. Okay, you're here. Let's deal. 
Verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered... What's it mean to consider something? Think about. Have you considered my servant whom? Job. That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. God is saying, it's interesting, you claim to run the whole world. Have you forgotten about Job? He doesn't like you. He likes me. I'm guessing Satan wasn't like, well, you know, you can't win them all. (laughs) This made Satan irate. Because remember, originally, the idea was, I'm the one crusading for freedom. Notice all the songs in heaven are about him. Follow me, follow me. And God's like, I am love. And he's like, no, you're not. The idea behind Satan's rebellion is that, man, if any sentient being had a clear picture of who you really were, they would choose to run away from you like I did. God says, that's interesting, you're running planet Earth, and uh, this guy still likes me. Notice what Satan says. So Satan, verse 9, answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for what? Nothing? (laughs) You don't think he's doing it for free, do you? Sure, he likes you, but why? Why? Look what he says. Continue on. Verse 10. Have you not made a hedge around him and all his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Mm. Told you things got tense. And watch what the Lord does. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. By the way, why does Satan have any power? Because the Lord allows it, right? Why does he allow it? Keep thinking, keep thinking. Only do not lay a hand on his person. You can't hurt him physically, but you can take all the stuff around him and start whittling away at him. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And immediately the scene shifts back to earth and everything that was mentioned in the first five verses comes crashing down. And Job is left with basically nothing. And the rest of the story goes on in the book of Job. But We can study the book of Job, but my point here tonight is to show you what Satan says about the character of God. Now, God has declared that his character is merciful and kind and gracious and long-suffering, yet just and fair. In fact, the Bible says God is love. And that's why we should love, because he loves us. It's a love-brings-forth-love kind of relationship. Satan says that's not what God's like. You're only loyal to God because he's good to you. You stop all that goodness. You stop all that niceness. You actually show yourself for the God that you are. And he will curse you to your face just like I do. Now, I think it's a fascinating story. Job, you know, poor guy doesn't even know what's going on. He doesn't realize he's the rope in a great big tug of war, right? 
But God and his principles are standing on one side and he's making strong arguments. Satan and his principles rebutting right back. But what I find most intriguing in the story of Job is not what God says and not what Satan says. Let me ask you a question. What do the sons of God say? Not one word. Remember they're called to the meeting too? Satan steps up, God's taking roll call, and all of a sudden it starts between Satan and God, and they're watching like a ping pong game, right? Ooh, oh, good shot. Oh, that's true. Oh, oh. Now these are not fallen creatures. These are loyal creatures to God, but they're not saying, hey, get on out of here. We don't want to... Remember in the very beginning that those who knew you might gaze at you and consider you? Why is God letting this whole thing play out? Is it so God can learn some things? No, God already knows everything, does he not? But he's got a universe full of free moral agents who can think their own thoughts and choose whom they will serve. God can see through people, but we can only see to them. And on the outside, Satan's arguments might actually sound legit. So, we continue. Watch this now. By the way, go back to your fill in the blank. The bottom of lesson four. Satan argued that Job was only loyal to God because God paid him. What do we call that, by the way? When you win friends with payments? It's bribery, right? He says, sure, people like you, but it's because you pay them. You're a corrupt administrator. So though the book bears his name, Job is not on trial. Though he has some trials, right? The real real scene is what's going on up in heaven. In reality, God is being judged. What kind of a God is this? By the way, I want to show you something interesting. Go back to the book of Ezekiel. Turn to the right in the Old Testament still. Ezekiel chapter 28. We looked at this passage the other night, Ezekiel chapter 28, about the original fall of Satan from heaven. Of course, he wasn't Satan at first. He was this beautiful, perfect, as it says in verses 14 through 15. Holy cherub. But it says in verse 16 of Ezekiel chapter 28, by the abundance of your, and what's that next word? Trading. Does anyone have a King James Version Bible? What does that word there say? Merchandise. You get the concept, merchandise trading. You get the idea that he's peddling something or selling something around the courts of heaven. You know, I thought the rebellion was easy, killing people, but apparently he's just setting up a lemonade stand. What did he actually do? What was going on in heaven? Now, we made the point that the war in heaven was not a war of weapons, but a war of words, right? And apparently by his trading or his merchandise, by the abundance of this, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you a covering chair from the midst of the fiery stones. Now, again, we just keep reading verse 17. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might, what? Gaze at you so that they can have a chance to see you. Now, again, let's look at verse 18. 
You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. And what were those iniquities? By the iniquity of your trading. And in King James it says, merchandise. Fascinating. Some versions say traffic, trading, peddling, merchandise. You're selling something. What was he selling around the courts of heaven and why did he get kicked out? Well, handily enough, the same root word that's rendered in the New King James, trading, or in some versions, traffic or merchandise, that same root word is used a couple other times in Scripture. One of them is just in the same book of Ezekiel. Go back to chapter 22, and we'll see the same root word translated, but not this time as trading, but as another term. Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 9. Again, we're looking for a specific word. We're going to hop it out of the context of the text just to look at this one word. But look at Ezekiel chapter 22 and verse 9. In you are men who, what's that next word? Slander. Same root word as trading. Now, what does slander mean? To run down somebody's reputation, their character, give them a bad name, right? say stuff about them that's not necessarily true, to put them in a bad light to make others think less of them, to slander them. Apparently, that's what he was trafficking around. There's one other instance. By the way, go back to the book of Leviticus. Page 112 in your pew Bible, Leviticus chapter 19. The third book of the Bible, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 16. The same root word as trading is now in translated another way, but it all means the same thing. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. Here God is instructing his people through Moses. You shall not go about as a what? Tailbearer. Now, think about this. Even today, if someone tells a big tale about something, and you accept it, or in fact, if you refuse to accept it, you don't believe it, you say, I'm not buying it, right? Yeah, it's storytelling. Is it possible that what Satan was doing in heaven was not out there trying to arm wrestle God or fist fight him to the ground or shoot him with a gun? What he was doing was peddling his little lies about God and his character. Again, you notice that every song's about God around here. It's always his law, his way. Oh, he's so great. When do you get to be great? Or for that matter, when do I get to be great? He's doing it from his position of trust as the covering cherub, but he's peddling seeds of doubt. That's Satan's lemonade stand. And here in the book of Job, as we just saw, he keeps those arguments up. You don't think he really likes you, do you? You're not actually love. You're the opposite of love. You're a taker. You're not a giver. It's all about you. Let's turn our page over to the back page. John chapter 8 and verse 44. John chapter 8 and verse 44 
is the culmination of an interesting conversation that actually starts in verse 37. Jesus had a very difficult time when he was here. His public ministry was only three and a half years, and basically every day of his life, somebody was out to get him. Sometimes that would be physical violence. You'll see sometimes they'd want to push him off a cliff or throw him with stones or tear him apart or drag him out of the city or whatever. But most of the time when people attacked him, it wasn't with weapons, it was with words. They try to trap him with a trick question and really trying to force him into a corner. This is what we see in John chapter 8. Look at verse 37. Jesus says to these people who are trying to trap him, the religious leaders, he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. It's like, I'm not contesting that, by the way. You are genetically sons of Abraham. Sure, if they had DNA testing at that time, I'm sure you could show it goes right back to Abraham. He says, no problem. You are Abraham's descendants, but here's a big difference. You seek to do what? Kill me. (laughs) Because my word has no place in you. Now notice what he says here. I speak what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've seen with whom? Your father. By the way, I don't care how hard I preach during this whole series, you will never hear as pointed of stuff come out of me as came out of Jesus. Sometimes I think we have this picture of Jesus. He always like docile and kind of otherworldly and kind of spaced out a little bit. And, you know, had lambs petting and children on his lap. Jesus rolled up his sleeves and said some stuff sometimes. This is one of those occasions. Watch as the conversation unfolds. Verse 38 and verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Apparently, what you're looking for is not just a genetic descendancy. You're looking for a common character trait, like father, like son, a chip off the old block. They said, we're Abraham's children. And God says, no, you're not. You're trying to kill me. Abraham never once did that. In fact, he says that very thing. Watch this. Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds, and here he says it again, of whom? Your father. They're starting to get angry. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, and who is that now? God. Christ has come saying, I am the representative of the father. I am the son of God. And they said, no, we're the true descendants of God. Christ says, you're not from God. You do the deeds of your true father. And he gets a little bit more explicit as the story unfolds. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would what? Love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to understand my word, to accept my word. You, watch this now, verse 44. This is where we're headed. You are of your father, whom? The devil. Woo! Jesus said some stuff, didn't he? You are of your father, the devil. Now, why can he say that? Does he mean genetically? He's not talking about DNA proof, right, that that Satan spawned actual children. No, he's talking about in character. Your insides match his insides. You are of your father, verse 44, The devil and the desires of your father you want to do. 
By the way, what did Satan want to do to God way back in the beginning? Kill him. But it wasn't a war of weapons, it was a war of words. But now that Christ has come in the flesh, now that he's on this world that Satan claims as his, do you think Satan's going to stop till he gets his pound of flesh? Christ says, I know what you're doing. You're working for another father. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from when? From the beginning. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar. And not just, he doesn't just tell lies. He's the father of it. Of all lying started with him. Now I bring this out to to illustrate this point. Satan says, God is not the God of love that he claims. He's a liar. Jesus comes and says, he's been a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He's a liar. And the sons of God are like, that's a good point. That's a good point. Let me, let me pull out a principle for you here. If, not when, but if, you are ever accused of being a liar. You know what you can't say? Think about it now. If someone says you're a liar, you know what you can't say in return. No, I'm not. Think about it. Why? Because that's what a liar would say. Right? If he's truly a liar, he's going to be like, nope, I'm not a liar. Because liars don't tell the truth, (laughs) right? And so if someone says, you're a liar, and you say, I am not, they're going to come back and say, see, there you go again. And then you're going to say, no, 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 I'm really not lying. I promise I'm telling the truth. And they're going to say, you're only making this worse for yourself. You're digging a deep hole. And then you're getting emphatic, and you're pumping up and down. I am not a liar. I'm telling the truth. No, you're not. Here's my point. At some point, words are no longer enough. Do you hear me? Words are not enough to actually end the argument. Look at your study guide now. Let's fill in some blanks. If ever accused of being a liar, you won't get anywhere by merely saying, no, I'm not. God could stand up in heaven and say, no, 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 what he's saying is not true. I really am a God of love. I would give myself for any one of you. I I really, really am self-sacrifice. I'm really merciful and gracious, just like I told Moses, I promise. And Satan's going to say, no, you're not. Satan's accusations required God to do more than merely a proclamation of his true character. Like he could get up and say, no, listen to me. I am loving and kind and gracious and compassionate. And Satan would say, no, you're not. It takes more than a mere proclamation of his true character. Satan's lies necessitated a demonstration of true character. It's one thing to say it, but at some point... They have to see it. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? I hope that all your deep quietness is, mmm, good deep thought. (laughs) But it's one thing to say something, but at some point you have to see it. Thus we read the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 56. Go there with me to Isaiah chapter 56, page 713 in your pew Bible. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 1. Looking forward to the coming of Jesus, notice what he writes in this prophetic passage. Thus saith the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come. Looking forward to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, right? But what's it says going to do? And my righteousness to be what? Let me ask you a question. Did Christ's death on the cross make God righteous? No. God's been righteous and just and merciful and loving all along. It simply revealed it because it had been covered up by a whole bunch of lies. God says, I'm going to send my son, and he's not just going to say it, he's going to show the truth. Christ revealed the character of God. We're going to go through several passages here in rather quick order, but look at 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. Why did Jesus come to this world? Oftentimes we say it was so that he could die so that I could get back into heaven. And yes, our going to heaven is a part of his plan. But friends, and I know this might hit you like a ton of bricks, there's something bigger than just saving us in God's mind. Now, you might not believe that right now, but take that idea, put it on the shelf for a little bit, tend to it, care for it, give it water and food when it needs it, okay? But there's something bigger in God's mind than merely saving fallen man. Though I praise the Lord, that's a part of his plan. But there's something bigger in mind. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 8. The Apostle John, John the Beloved, John the Revelator, the one who wrote the book we're studying, talks about this. John chapter 3 and verse 8. He who sins is of whom? The devil, just like Jesus told them. If you sin, you're of the devil because he's a sinner, right? He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. He's the beginner of it. Now notice this. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So what he started there from the beginning of sin is what Christ came down here to fix. And all ever since that time, ever since his rebellion in heaven, he's been peddling, selling, trading, trafficking lies about the character of God. And apparently it's for this reason that Christ came, not just to say who God was, but to actually show who God was. Think about it. Now we go to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse 14. Again, a likely passage we're familiar with, but it says here, and the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, became what? Flesh and dwelt where? Among us. And we beheld His what? Now, when Christ came to this world, was He full of shiny, radiant, bling? No. When it says we beheld His glory, what does that mean? We beheld His glory character 
when we looked at Jesus, we saw the character of God. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. Go to the right, John chapter 12. As Jesus was getting closer and closer to his ultimate sacrifice, that divine appointment with Calvary, notice what he asks himself. It's an interesting thing. We get to eavesdrop on a conversation the Lord has with himself. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Then he says, Father, glorify your what? Your name, your character. Let me be the answer to the accusations of Satan. That's the whole reason I came here. Still in John chapter 12, go over to verses 44 and 45. Look what Jesus declares. Then Jesus cried out and said, notice this is not just some passive, modest, like tame little thing you crochet on the bathroom wall. Then Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. The whole purpose of Jesus coming was to show the truth about God that Satan had been lying about for thousands of years. Go to the next passage over here, John chapter 14, just proceeding to the right in the Gospel of John. John chapter 14, starting with verse 7. This, by the way, had to be one of the most difficult things for Jesus to hear. He's getting closer and closer with his appointment with death. And his own disciples say this to him. He says in verse 7, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have what? Seen him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And notice what Philip now says to him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us whom? The Father, and it is sufficient for us. How discouraging must that have been for Christ? That was the whole reason I came, was to show you who the Father is. And after three years, you're going to come to me and say, you know, at at some point, could we just take a sneak peek at the Father? (laughs) Notice what Christ's reaction is. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has what? seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? That was my whole mission. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Well, we'll start with verse 7. It helps out a little bit. Romans chapter 5, starting with verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. We think about from our own All right, if you're good enough, then you might be worth me laying down my life. But this is not the deal God made. 
He didn't say, when you're good, I'll lay down my life for you. Watch what it says here now in verse 8. But God, what's this next word? Demonstrates. What's it mean to demonstrate? To show. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How did God show his love? Through Jesus Christ and his willingness to lay down his life for us, even though we were sinners. Go to the right again, 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. I like how the New International Version renders that. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is how He did it. Think about the importance of this, friends. When Jesus lived a perfect life of sinlessness, Not one time did he cave to Satan's arguments. Not one time did he yield to temptation. But every time he relied on his Father and through his selflessness, the world, the onlooking universe, saw who God really was. Now let's take it a step farther. I'm going to add something to that. They saw who God really was for the very first time. Now think about it. It also doesn't say that God became love, right? It's not like Jesus died and then God became love. No, God sent his son because he loved, right? You know the most famous passage in Scripture, John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he what? That he gave. The love happened first and it's the motive for giving, right? God so loved the world that he gave. So God has been love all along. God has declared it. I am merciful and gracious and just. I am love. But until the moment of the cross, had there ever been an opportunity for God to demonstrate that self-sacrificing love? Friends, before this, it had all been theory. Thus Satan could say lies. No, he wouldn't really give himself for you. He really wouldn't sacrifice. Everything's about him, him, him. Every song, every law, everything is about him. I'm really in your best interest. I'll give you freedom. But God says, no, no, no. I am love. I would give anything for you. But until that time, it was just words. But at some point, words are not enough. So when Christ stretched forth his arm and Satan unleashed through his agents those desires that he had wanted to do from the very beginning, that violence that was pent up within, when Satan unleashed all of that on the sinless Son of God, two things happened. Number one, The universe saw 
that he indeed, Satan, really was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. That if given the opportunity, he would take everything, including the very life of God, were it possible, to suit his own desires. But in sharp contrast to the character of Satan, they also saw for the very first time the full manifestation of the love of God, who would give everything, including the life of God himself, were it possible, to give us an opportunity of salvation, to show who the Father really is. When Christ stretched forth his hands, two questions were answered. What's the real character of Satan, and what's the real character of God? And in one act, those sons of God were no longer listening to the arguments of Satan. They were no longer interested in what he had to say. Which brings us all the way back around to our very first text, Revelation chapter 12, as we close. Why I believe there's a second casting down. Why Christ could say, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be what? Cast out. Because when they saw the event of Calvary, they no longer have any questions about why Satan should die. They're like, we're on board with you. Thus we see back in Revelation chapter 12, after verses 7 through 9 describe the initial war in heaven, and verse 9 records how Satan was cast out, verse 9 of Revelation chapter 12, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. That was the initial casting out out of the courts of heaven. But now, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast Let's go to our last fill in the blanks at the close of our worksheet here, our study guide. Just to make sure we review and understand the concepts laid out here tonight. Satan had smeared the name or the character of God, arguing he was not the God of love that he claimed. Satan had smeared the character of God, the name of God, his own reputation. Thus, since merely calling Satan a liar would be insufficient, God demonstrated or revealed the truth, how? In Jesus. Jesus came to be the answer the visible answer to all of Satan's subtle insinuations and merchandise about the character of God. The third one, Satan's murder of Jesus revealed the true character of both God and his enemy. The enemy who has done this from Matthew chapter 13 
Calvary revealed who he really was. And for the first time, the universe saw who God really was. It wasn't just theory. He genuinely was love. Which brings us to our fourth point. Christ's death severed any remaining sympathy unfallen beings might have had for Satan, essentially casting him out of heaven a second time. Initially, he was cast out of the courts of heaven, but God understood that those onlooking intelligences needed an opportunity to see for themselves what God had seen in him all along. But when they saw Calvary, they said, we're done with you, and we're locked and loyal to God from here on out. Let me ask you a question. Has tonight's presentation been clear and made sense? Could you please raise your hand if it's true? Don't just raise because everybody else is. But I want to know, did it actually make sense? Praise God. Let me ask you a second question then. Were there some insights tonight from Scripture that you had never heard before? Can you raise your hand and be honest? Praise God. You might have some questions. That's okay. We've got a whole basket just for questions. Okay? But in all seriousness, please take the study guides home. Review the concepts. Look it up for yourself. Cross-reference every text you can think of. But you'll see that this war that's described in the book of Revelation isn't just some end-time thing. It's an all-time thing. And what we see in the last chapters of the book of the Bible, the last pages of Scripture, the book of Revelation, is simply the end point to this much larger controversy that's been waging for thousands of years. I pray that these ideas are starting to settle in and that you're getting a picture of the character of God that's deeper, broader, better than you've ever seen before. Before we dismiss tonight, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who is love. Thank you for creating us in the first place. And Lord, thank you for dealing with this problem of evil in not just a good way, but the only way that it will truly work. And Lord, as those unfallen beings, those sons of God that have been referenced in Scripture have cast out Satan from their affections, my prayer is that we would do the same. Help us no longer to have any sympathy for the devil, but help us to see in Jesus and his sacrifice the true character of God and let us choose whom we will serve. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.